Welcome to Business as an Adventure, a podcast dedicated to improving the businesses and lives of creative entrepreneurs. Together, we interview high-performing entrepreneurs and creatives from all over the world, explore what makes them and their business unique, and along the way, we uncover their secrets to help you craft your own adventure in the world of business. All right, so here we go. Uh, today, we are going to be talking to Felicia Chang, and Felicia is an award-winning photographer focusing on documentary family photography and birth photography. She's an educator and co-host of the Quietly Loud Workshop, a speaker at conferences such as the Real Life Conference for Women Photographers, and where we were supposed to meet in person this year at the True North Conference, and has been featured in a number of uh, print and online publications. Originally from Malaysia, she now calls North Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada her home. If you follow Felicia on social media, you'll see that she's not only an amazing photographer, but an active voice in many causes, from standing up for and with midwives in her home province to ensure that they have proper compensation and retirement funds, uh, to the diversity photo community for BIPOC and non-Western photographers, editors, and visual producers looking to change the culture in the photography industry. Originally, when I reached out to Felicia to speak either in our Facebook group or here on the podcast, she was hesitant. But as in most things, I was relentless. And I'm glad to have her on the show, as I think she's one of the most important emerging voices in our industry. So thank you for being with us today, Felicia. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Angie, and today for having me here on this on your show. Yeah, on this chat. That was quite a introduction. I really want to thank you for that. <laughs> You did some digging. Really good at those. He's so good at those. He's way better at those than I. I'm not. I'm not a person that's very prolific on social media, but he managed to find all the little things that were important to me, which I really appreciate. I I like to deep dive. What can I say? Um, All right. So I just want to start off with an uh, just softball question, Mm -hmm. just to get us warmed up, but. Did you do anything weird during the last six months of COVID, like learning to bake something strange or woodworking or basket weaving or anything like that? Um, Nothing completely new to me, but definitely amping up on the baking, just like a lot of other people. Um, That was very comforting for me, um, both eating it and and making it for my family. Uh, I think there's something with food that you know the the senses that it, it engages it brings you so much comfort and warmth and all those things that you can gather your family together to share so that was definitely one I've been putting off uh when things were really busy the last few years not exercising a ton so now I've gotten into a really good rhythm of doing it almost every day I think there's a there's some saying that if you want to formulate a habit it takes like 65 days or 60 days or something like that to do it constantly um, consistently before you get it. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it. So I'm kind of excited about that. What's your, uh, your exercise of choice? Cause that is also mm-hmm. something I feel like I need to get better at. Yeah. It goes between, um, doing bar online, online classes and running in the trails. Nice. We're very lucky. There's here. lots of good trails in North Vancouver. Yes. Actually, I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge, uh, that I live, I'm very grateful to live in and work on the ancestral, um, unceded, uh, and traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples here in North Vancouver. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I love, it's one thing I love about going out to the coast is I feel like there's a lot of, and I mean, you can correct me where I'm wrong here, but from coming from Alberta, where we don't really stand up for our First Nations population a lot, at least on the coast, it feels like there's more and more, even more so than when I was a kid, representation for them out there. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the, the, to me, in, in my mind, that's kind of the right direction that we all need to take to find some way to, to acknowledge the people that came before us, because we're all settlers here. So 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So on that vein, let's talk a little bit about diversify photo mm-hmm. because I'm I'm seeing more people stand up, not just in our industry, but around the world to stand up for for BIPOC people and for uh, minorities of any kind. <laughs> Basically, to not have people who are me, white middle aged guys, mm-hmm. um, be the focus on everything. Um, so, how did you become part of diversify photo, and what are the impacts you're seeing in our industry? I came to know about Diversify uh, probably, I'm trying to think, it was in 2019 sometime, um, probably midway through the year. I was tagged in a post by Katie Jetwalls, who is another documentary photographer um, out of Washington, D.C., and she's actually been quite uh, involved in amplifying voices of you know non-white photographers for a long time anyway. So when she saw this collective come together, you know, she just tagged a bunch of uh, her sort of people that she knew that would qualify for that group. And so like anything else, I just didn't know where this was going to go at the time. So I threw an application together and then actually heard back from them earlier this year uh, in the spring. Yeah. So I'm now part of this community online. They have a really fantastic community group on Facebook where the people uh, Andrea Wise, Brent, I forget his last name. Oh, it's so bad. And they're basically a group of photo editors and photojournalists that have been in the industry for a really long time are seeking that change. And so they have put together this online community where people can share um, ideas and resources and post um, job postings that are specifically looking for other kinds of groups to fill the position because um, they really just want to spread the work around because there isn't a, you know, previously isn't a way to kind of get it out there. So I think that's, it's been a really informative medium to learn and share the opportunities that are out there in, in the editorial and um, journalism world and the commercial world too. So yeah, commercial seems to be this like almost slightly forgotten child when I talk to most <laughs> photographers. It's like people in commercial are just happy to go over there and do their work. Yeah. But I see like a lot of the activism is, at least in my space, and maybe it's just the circles that I run in, is coming from more lifestyle photographers than anything else, mm-hmm. wedding, family, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you and I started talking quite frequently earlier this year, kind of around George Floyd mm-hmm. and, and, and that whole time as I wanted to step up uh, to try to enhance voices that weren't my own or didn't look like me. I'm, I'm grateful to have uh, Angie as a business partner, but again, we're two white people mostly, um, <laughs> not mostly entirely. <laughs> um, Completely. <laughs> I, I'm just curious, and, and I mean, feel free to answer this in any way that you that you want. This, the question just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has the last six months looked like for you as a non-white photographer? Because as a white photographer in the industry, it's been mostly for me shutting up and listening. Mm-hmm. Have have people been reaching out to you to speak more, or was that already just part of where you were going with your with your career? I think it's really hard to gauge. There hasn't been too many sort of requests over the last little bit, but prior to you know the BLM movement kind of surging into the population and more people understanding and and recognizing the importance of having to do that work. I was already very fortunate to be part of, you know, photography communities uh, and groups that are already trying to do that. Anyhow, like, you know, real life conference being one of the main places where I've learned a lot about 
speaking in circles where race was a was a big consideration and discrimination was a big consideration and and they brought about a lot of that kind of awareness into the conversations as uncomfortable as they can be and I've really appreciated um, learning from that the last few years and so being asked to speak at different conferences I didn't actually hear directly that you know, the conference um, organizers are seeking me out specifically because I'm Asian or other, you know, non-white. But I'm always very grateful to see the lineup of speakers if I wasn't the only, you know, token non-white person. And there are other speakers that represent, you know, Black speakers or Indigenous speakers. I'm always really grateful to be there with them because I think there's so much value from their own different perspectives, right? And that's sort of, I've kind of looked at that and taken that model and applied it to workshops that I'm running, especially if there are guest speakers that to try and have guest speakers that are not, um, not sort of the, the normal group of superstars that people always kind of want on, on board with them, which I understand because there's, there's a lot of knowledge to be gained and their experience speaks for something, but I think it's time to create space for other people to say what they have to say because because they have have different lives and they have different histories and and they carry um kind of their generational and and cultural um histories with them too in their storytelling and and the way they build their business and the way they communicate with people so i think it's really important to have that diversity so when you know when when you're marketing your Mm -hmm. your services which is, you know, the documentary, family photography, and then um, birth photography yeah. and all of that. How, how are you reaching out to different groups mm-hmm. to diversify what you're able to show the world? Yeah, I think documentary photography itself is such a wonderful genre to begin with because it really champions kind of the the, the full gamut of human emotion, right? So there's already that quote-unquote filter on the kind of people you get to work with so people that are ready to be a little bit more vulnerable and be a little bit more accepting and typically a a, a fair bit more open to to kind of the world view and so that being said the diversity sort of comes with it too but there's the other side of the coin where if you're trying to make a successful business in documentary photography in doing kind of the longer form family sessions they take a lot of time and they take um, even longer time to sort of call and edit and create a narrative that really acknowledges the family story. And I can't, to be able to make this business sustainable, I can't charge below a certain dollar amount. So I'm really conflicted with that piece of it too, where if I'm charging thousands of dollars for a family to have their story told in one whole day, then that precludes a lot of families in terms of affordability as well. So I I grapple with that reality myself. So I know that automatically, <laughs> you know, it, it sort of whittles down the, the ability to create stories for diverse families. But then I can also say to myself, if I make X amount of dollars a year, then I can apportion part of that and do the work that is for other families that can't afford it, that have a very different story to tell if that's something they're wanting or seeking. And then there's the personal project bit of it, which is what funds, uh, what is what my business funds as well. So 
that's where that sort of diversity work comes from. Do you take on a certain number of those, um, do you take a certain number of those sessions that, um, you know, you're able to do for free? Do you do that like once a quarter or is it one of those, like you have to look at your numbers at the end of the year and see how many that you can um, justify? How does that process work for you? I am as good and as accountant as one who does everything at the end of the year. So it's really, I leave it till the end and see what numbers I come, I've come up with for the year. I mean, I have a rough idea based on invoices month to month that I'm still meeting my general goals. But yeah, it, it's it's looking at the, the annual income and then seeing, yes, I, I have the time and space to put that forward to the next year. But in terms of, something a little bit more structured where I, I can think of like, I'm going to take four families and do four day in lives sort of thing. It's less so because I just like for the projects to come organically. So if I have thrown out a bunch of ideas to different organizations or groups, then um, if they come back and say, Hey, we have time to schedule something or this sounds like a good project that let's pursue that. Then, then that's, where I, I often go is, is whatever kind of appears organically. Nice, nice. So I want to take a few steps back from including diversity and how, mm-hmm. how you do free sessions. And I, I want to talk about your journey from working as a geologist in the mm-hmm. Canadian Arctic <laughs> to a documentary family photographer. These are, you know, it seems like very left brain, right brain sort of things. Yeah. Like a, like just a large swing. And I'm just so very interested to see, to have you share with everyone how that transition happened for you. Yeah, it was actually pretty abrupt. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I'm, it was always my intention to go into geology as an undergrad science student. And when I finished my undergrad, I pursued my master's because I wanted to learn more. And from there I started right away working in the Arctic for over a decade. And during that time, I, it was, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was, it was a way to see part of uh, Canada that not a lot of people get to experience. It was um, working in the field. I, I, I have a very deep connection and need to be outside. So that ability of, you know, hours and hours of traversing and, and, being in landscapes that are untouched, essentially, um, was was so incredible. And as a geologist, it's kind of exciting because I'm in the exploration part of it where I'm looking for the treasure, so to speak. So I'm not in the mining portion, but when I started a family, I tried to pivot from a field geologist and a project manager to something that was a little bit more um, based at home. And that was difficult. I, I did end up working, going back to work after my first daughter, my first year of maternity was up. And I worked in primarily in the office, essentially being the person that where all the data comes in, I'm, I'm pulling it all together and then turning it around so that they can go back into the field and pursue those targets that look really interesting. And then I just financially, it didn't make sense for me living in Vancouver to go back to work and pay for um, incredible amounts of childcare fees for both kids. Um, so I just told myself I grew up without my parents really being around. And I said, you know, with discussions with Derek, my husband, who, you know, who had both his, well, had his mom at home full time with him, that we would just 
try it out. And if I really just did not enjoy, you know, being a full-time mom at home, that I could always go back to work. But ironically, or maybe serendipitously, um, I think it was a year and a half after my maternity or with my second that, that the, the entire stock market for the mining sector crashed and never really recovered. So I would have lost my job anyway. Yeah. And so those two things, uh, it, there wasn't so much of a transition as much as there was like you take start taking photographs of your kids because you love them and they're cute. And my brain just needed some kind of stimulation. So I started taking lots of courses about photography and I always had a camera with me anyway when I was in the field, but there was no formal education. So a lot of it was just whatever I could find online when I was ready to learn. And then the rest is kind of the way it is. <laughs> Started a business not knowing what I was doing and charging very little and then learning the hard way around that if I would need to take this kind of seriously as a second career, I needed to figure out the numbers to make it work. Mm-hmm. What was that process like for you, figuring out the numbers? Uh, incredibly hard and and humbling. I, I had a big hand from Dana Pugh, who at the time this was maybe five years ago now where she was really just starting to give courses to photographers to educate them on, on the value of their work and their time and their time away from their family in particular. And that sort of the way she had framed it, you know, time away from your family, if you're not charging enough is essentially your family subsidizing your work and, and someone else's family photographs. So that just really hit home for me. It was kind of a really eye-opening way of framing it. So, yeah. yeah. She's a bit of a superhero when it comes to helping, especially family photographers, price their work. Yes. Yes, she is. And, and on the topic of documentary family, mm-hmm. I, I love documentary family photography. I've tried it and it's definitely not my forte, but I've always followed work of people like Dana or Kirsten Lewis or Jenna Shouldis. Um, I think documentary family work creates some of the most evocative and meaningful uh, records of daily life. But it also, when I talk to photographers, especially people trying to get into that genre, it's one of the hardest to market because it Mm -hmm. seems like most people feel when it comes to family photography, they want like one to three snapshots, one that they can hang on the wall and like one for the Christmas card kind of thing. So can you walk us a little bit through how you how you market your business or how you find your clients and how you talk to them or if you do about the importance of documentary family photography or just just essentially i hate using the word educating our clients because i feel like we don't need to educate our clients we just need to show them value but like how do you show that value and make them understand that what you do is important yes it's a it's a really good question and it's a question that i get often even just the other day in my in my uh, Instagram inbox, there was another photographer that's just starting to shift over from portrait and lifestyle work to documentary work because she she loves the idea and she sees the value and she just was wondering how clients actually get it. And there's always a lag, I think, with trying to get people to understand that this is very much honoring the people that they are instead of who society wants them to be. And and I always do tell them if if people are asking me about what is it that you do, what does documentary family photography mean? I just explain to them that that I'm spending time with them. I'm looking for relationships. I'm I'm trying to 
document the moments that are really nuanced and that's only specific to them. I couldn't go to a different family and find the same kind of exact same kind of moments between people and siblings or relationships between parents or even parents and, and children. So the, the dynamic is just so important to, to document because it's not something you can get in a portrait or a lifestyle uh, session. And that's the difference is that you can go back um, in time when your kids are older and they can look at these photographs and say, this is how we were parented, or this is what mom and dad or, or mom and mom or dad and dad did for us when we were little. And, and we don't remember, like, I, I know speaking to grandparents when they're part of the session, I asked them, how was it parenting? you know, the child, and now you see that your child is a parent themselves, how, how was that different? And a lot of them don't really remember the finer details. And I think that's where the value is in these, in these photographs. But I do also say, you know, open-endedly, like, it's not one, it sh I know money-wise, it could be one or the other, but you can very much be the family that wants this photography style where it's documentary and it's honest and, and it's really vulnerable and intimate. And you can also want pictures that are just 30 minutes, really joyful, um, a capsule of what it feels like to be a family right now. And, and they have very different value placements, but are, are not, but one is not better than the, better than the other. Mm -hmm. I had a day in the life photo shoot done with me and my family back in January mm -hmm. And um, I had a friend staying with us, and she was like, "I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do this for you guys." Her name's Bree. She's really good. And the photos she got from that, you know, we had a book made and everything. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it's been almost a year. I'm expecting my second, and those photos have become more and more um, valuable. Mm -hmm. And just things like, "Oh yeah, I forgot that we did that at bedtime," or "Oh, that's how her room looked when her crib was still in there." Um, and I, I assume that as time goes on, it will become more valuable. And it's, it's part of, you know, it's part of making a legacy. Yeah. And I see that, um, you know, like creeping on your website. I see, I see a lot of that kind of language. And I think um, one of the most powerful things looking through your site that I saw was let yourself exist mm -hmm. in your photographs. Do you find that this is like, this is a common kind of trope that women fall into is that we are typically the memory keepers of of our families and therefore we <laughs> were absent from all the photos i think that's pretty common i don't know if it's a function of the role of women as caretakers or the role of women as the primary caregivers even and it doesn't necessarily always have to be that way but you know by function of being around your children more often than your partner that you're the one chasing them around with your phone these days right and and getting whatever photographs or snapshots and video clips that you can to help keep all those memories. Yeah. Well, I thought you did a great job communicating that on your site. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and what, and I don't have it right in front of me, but what is the banner? Um, oh yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Photographs okay, worth hold running. on. Hold on. I'm pulling it up right now. You can say Photographs it. worth running into a burning house for. That's yeah. good marketing language. <laughs> that is so good. That was actually a brainstorming session. So I took this uh, Fast and Furious marketing class with David Dushman and um, his partner, Cynthia, is a copywriter. So 
it was it was a two day uh, workshop in Vancouver in person uh, about three years ago, and we were just brainstorming language and copy and you know taglines and and somehow that came together out of all three of us kind of refining the lines, and then that was like this is it. <laughs> we're all happy with this. We're sticking with it. That's awesome. I I love it when I'm doing bridal consults for weddings. Uh, I talk about albums. Mm-hmm. And I talk about, you know, like if your house were to burn down right now, like what what would be the first thing that you would grab? And they always talk about their pictures. And I'm like, well, yeah, this is, we'll add another thing for you to grab, which is going to be your wedding album. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I use the, I use the burning house metaphor. Yeah. But this, this was just, it was so punchy. And I just, I love that. Thank you. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly what this is. And it, you know, it ties back to legacy. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant on that note from a from a sales perspective what is what does that look like for for you and your clients like do you does everybody get an album does everybody get wall art what is that mm-hmm. education process and, and 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 the actual business process look like for you you know it's really uh, interesting that you ask that question because my goal is always to make sure that the the integrity of their family story is is kept together and intact and so whether that's through an album or a fusion video. So it's often one or the other and a few families that do choose both. But interestingly enough, maybe it's the digital age, maybe it's the demographic of people that I, I work with, but they more often than not choose the fusion story, which sometimes I'm like, so much more work <laughs> put together because it's video clips and calling and color grading and then having to kind of, I, I choose to go to the beat of the music and then choosing the music itself is something else altogether. It's a bit of a rabbit hole that I hate. But yeah, it's it they've always more often than not chosen the, the fusion film. But I I myself when I have my day in life sessions choreographed for my family, always album. Always. Yeah. 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 I love I love books and so we we made the yes. shift a couple of years ago for all of our wedding clients where it's just included they don't get a choice anymore it's like you get an album yeah <laughs> and at, at first it was a fight with a lot of our clients because they're just like oh can we remove the album to save more money and then once we figured out how to speak to the importance of it and we mm-hmm. use a similar thing you know it's like if you if your house is on fire you're not going to find a USB in a junk drawer somewhere you're going to know where your wedding album is yeah and so that's always an easy sell for us but yeah it's there's, there's some magic about photo books. Yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, man, so many so, questions. <laughs> I know. Well, okay. So personally, tomorrow, I'm going to go attempt my first day in the life with some friends. And I am I'm nervous going into this mm-hmm. um, because I tend to be a... I'm not a quiet photographer. Some people are just really quiet and they stay in the back and they observe. I am like, I'm in there, mm-hmm. <laughs> like in people's personal space. Um, sometimes I think I tend to like over talk when I'm with people instead of like me- letting a moment happen. I'm just like, let me comment and make a funny joke. Um, so yeah, I- I'm very nervous about going into this. What's your best piece of advice for someone shooting their first day in the life documentary style session? I think your ability to be with people and wanting to talk to them and engage with them can help to build trust. And so I th- I don't think it's a bad thing at all. So that would be the first piece of advice is just to put them at ease and, and 
have them feel like, oh, Angie's a friend. Well, you are a friend going over anyway, but it's, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, it just puts them at ease and then they just carry on their merry way. And that's when the magic happens is because they don't care about the camera anymore. You're just there. So it's not so much the photographer needs to be invisible. It's the camera that needs to be invisible. Hmm. Ooh, that, I feel like that needs to be on the website. <laughs> that's, that's a really good yes, nugget sure. there. It's not the photographer, it's the camera. Yeah. Title for your next talk, Felicia. Like <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Yes. Yeah, please write that down somewhere. I want to write that down somewhere right I will, now. I, I want to like put it above my computer. transcribe this podcast when it goes live and then I'll write it down. <laughs> Although my, my bullet journal is right beside me. So I can yeah. do that later. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, on the terms of advice and speaking and everything else like mm-hmm. that, talk to me a little bit about the Quietly Loud Workshop. Aside from having probably my favorite workshop name that I've heard in years, <laughs> what what is it and, and, and how did it come about and what can people expect if they were to take it? And, and when, when can they sign up? Right. Um, well, thanks for asking about Quietly Loud. I'm one of two people involved in it. The other person being Christina Nieborg, who is uh, who has had a, a career as a photojournalist for over 20 years. So she since starting her family, has pivoted into documentary family work. And so Christine and I met a few years ago when she was uh, still living in BC. She's now in Ottawa. And as two Canadian photographers who love documentary work, (laughs) we had a lot of things to say and share about each other. And and also being primary caregivers, we had also other things to talk about besides photography. And we've always understood, and she puts it really well, it doesn't matter what your relationship is with photography, it is always a business. And she considers it that way, especially if you want to keep doing the work in some way or the other. And so we just sat there and we talked about education that we've gotten through different platforms and and what is lacking in terms of what people are looking for. And because the documentary family genre has gone through so much growth um, in the last few years thanks to Kirsten and Creative Live and now many other photographers who are also offering courses. All these people that have grown um, together in the last few years are now hitting this this part in their journey where they're incredible technical photographers and they can submit photography uh, photographs into you know the DFAs and, and get awards for them. But they're also now at a, at a place where they're just sort of like, okay, so now I, I this is like my bread and butter. I can I can sh- shoot, I can photograph really really well. I have awards to prove it. But what do my photographs mean to me? Like what, where, where to go from now, from here? Uh, so Christina and I chatted, and and we recognized that a, a lot of the way photographers think, you know, they execute things on a very technical level, and and they're just so precise, and and they're compositions are are like incredible to look at but then they forget about the intention and the why behind the photographs they make so we're just trying to kind of turn things kind of backwards and into getting them to remember how to make photographs that really reflect who they are i mean for lack of a better word we actually don't even we when we went through the copy of our workshop we try not to use the word voice because it's i feel like it's so overused and we both feel that way um so we want this workshop to be more about photographers developing their language in uh, from their own uh, lived experience so we incorporate it's sort of a lot of introspection work into their identity 
into their personal stories, personal histories, and then we build on from there and apply sort of a more pragmatic skill set where Christina teaches them about the importance of words and captions. So it's both photography, um, some deep self-work and making photographs, and then using captions to really elevate what these photographs mean. And then we feel like a sort of the combination of all of those things then, then can prepare them for thinking about making work or personal projects that becomes valuable to them and less of like, what is going to be really good for my portfolio, but more of work that is valuable to me and then comes back and gives myself this, this um, enlightened sense of who I am as, as an artist. And it's empowering the photographers to, to really step into the, that belief that they can create work that's very unique to who they are. Mm. You mentioned self-work in there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, as somebody, I, I coach photographers mostly for a living these days, and self-work mm-hmm. definitely seems to be more and more of what I work on with photographers. Yeah. When, it, when it comes to family photographers and when it comes to people that you have worked with in this workshop in the past, do you see or have you come across common limiting beliefs or roadblocks that maybe you know someone who's listening to this could get a head start on to to find that visual language or to find or create work that they find meaningful yeah um i think common block for a lot of us is it's the comparison of where we are with with respect to other people and that's the thing it's just our involvement with so much in the world wide web and social media it makes it really really challenging to filter out that noise and that can be we think can be detrimental to creating the work so it's it because the self-work that we're introducing in this class involves very much themselves and their stories and it it doesn't require them to go out into the sphere to do any research or look at what other people are doing or other people's art so the focus becomes revelations about their own life and their own stories and where past fears are or current fears are uh, about making photographs what is what has blocked them from their kind of own personal stories like it's incredible the amount of vulnerable things people share with us in that workshop and and we we could not help them along if they didn't allow themselves to open up that way so we're very grateful for the people that have taken the class and are willing to take that step to to look inward and it's a scary place for a lot of people and, and it's the same for me mm-hmm. but yeah and that's without doing that I, I don't think they could really get to the bottom of, of starting to find that language about themselves and how they want to express that awesome so we're, we'll link to all of this in the show notes for anybody who's listening if you want to sign up but just uh as a curiosity uh how and where and when can people sign up for the next quietly loud uh, Christina and I are just wrapping up the final notes and feedback from our students this run. And I think we're going to start to market uh, for the next run, which will be in January. Um, we're going to start to open it probably early December. Awesome. Yeah. And and for, on the note of the, the workshop name, um, <laughs> uh, Christina and I are, because we're very good friends, but also she's the one that's the, the talker between the two of us. <laughs> So she's allowed and I'm the quiet lady. <laughs> and we actually had, um, this was uh, speaking of pivoting this workshop. 
was meant to be an in-person workshop and there was actually there were actually three of us that were going to do it in Montreal um, in October and and the third person was going to be Lauren Mitchell who is another documentary photographer out of Florida but she's also the quiet so it's like the quiet <laughs> it was we had some a whole bunch of iterations for the workshop name it was like a quiet loud quiet or and then Lauren couldn't join us for the online workshop for her own sort of personal time and so Christine and I decided to just go with quietly loud. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. So you've mentioned a lot of photographer names and I love to talk to different photographers because everybody knows different people. Like mm-hmm. I can mention some photographers and you may have never heard of them, but in your personal world, regardless, or, uh, without any effective genre or skill or time in the industry, who do you think some photographers are out there that people should look at right now? Right now, I'm turning, um, or I'm spending a lot of time with uh, India Beale's work, and I th- and her name's probably come up in other people we've spoken to as well. But I knew a little bit about her before the Real Life Conference last year, but hearing her speak in person, that sort of stage presence that she has, and and how her work drives so much conversa- conversation that needs to happen in the pro- the photography industry, I'm really pulled to. Kind of her intention behind her projects so it's it's something that i i think of a lot when i embark upon ideas that i want to execute um i was telling um a fellow diversify member um in vancouver we went for a walk and uh we were just talking about like if we had no limitations on the kind of work we want to do in photography what would it be and and i told them that it would just be legacy work like if i could do projects whether it's uh, multimedia projects or photography or just videography but always working with some kind of nonprofit organization in helping them raise awareness raise funds for for advocacy work that would that would just be something i could do for forever and and that's not easy to find or not easy to do but yeah that's that's yeah. kind of what what i would um I would go and, and do. So that's why India is so incredible that way. She's inspiring to me. And and her new book. I can't wait to get it. Hmm. In mail. <laughs> or even yeah, I, I completely agree with you um, with the legacy stuff. Actually, David uh, uh, Dushman's uh, book, Vision Mongers, was the first mm-hmm. photo book that I ever got. And it was yeah. all with his like NGO work. And I like both my wife and I at the time were like, oh, this is the work that we want to do. And then we realized that there's very, very little, little money, money in that, so we need to get rich first, and then we can do all of that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And David still, well, at least three years ago when I took the workshop with him, was very much like, yes, there's money in, in nonprofit work, but not a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. So I... Normally, Angie asks this question, but I'm going to ask this question. Um, I don't have kids, but Angie does and is about to have a second. How has being a parent affected your photography career? Uh, a ton. <laughs> like a shit ton. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the experience of being a parent is what makes it easier for me to work with families. Um, not to say that someone who doesn't have children can't relate. I just, I'm like Angie. I like to share my anecdotes <laughs> with my families when I work with them. So um, the jokes and the awkward kind of stories come out too for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, being a parent definitely changed the way I see photography because I, my girls are constantly challenging me like as, as a person. And so I've, I've learned and grown so much as a human being by being 
a caregiver and, and, a, and a parent to them. And so that gives me a lot of understanding of, of how family dynamics are like when I'm with families. And it, it just allows me to let them know that like, I'm the last person to judge when something is happening. So don't like, don't worry. Don't apologize. Don't say your house is messy. Don't like, it's the same at my home. You know, it's those kind of being able to use my own personal experience to relate and make them feel like it's, it's okay. (laughs) Just human. Um, My girls have also really got me thinking about like speaking of that legacy work, but the legacy of photography in general, it's made me appreciate my own personal story and experience and identity because being a mother and being a parent, it's, it's so challenging and I'm constantly questioning myself whether I'm making the right decisions. Who, who are these human beings that I'm, I'm raising to into this world and what can I do to change the world that we're living in so that it becomes a better place for them. And so that question is often the driver of my decision-making process as a parent, as a photographer, in, in deciding the work that I do with photography. Um, so I don't think I would have the same perspective if I, maybe, maybe I could come to it a, a different way, but that's certainly the main reason why I do the work that I do this way. Awesome. Someone once told me that um, that we borrow our children from the world, mm-hmm. and I thought that was such a powerful sentiment to know that like your children they're yours, but they're not really yours. Yeah, because at some point you're going to Listen. to give them to yes. the world, and you're, you're going to unleash your children <laughs> on the world. So creating the world that you want to see for your children is part of that legacy yeah. is at the end of the day, you know, we won't be around for their, for the entirety of their lives. I just thought it was so very poignant. Yes. Very much so. So around here at Businesses of Adventure, one of the things that we love to talk about is failures. So I'm always curious to ask people this question of, do you have a favorite failure from your business and what did you learn from it? Mm-hmm. Learning that I'm not a very good portrait photographer <laughs> by doing <laughs> By doing and feeling uncomfortable in the process of, of trying to direct and stage and, and create photographs that are what, what I've seen other people buy or what, I, what I've seen other people really want as a product and structuring my business that way. And I was really, you know, my, you know how your body tells you certain things are uncomfortable and your body starts to tell you when you're stressed and it's not performing very well. It's, it's all of those physiological cues that, that have um, gotten me to make a decision to go away from portrait and lifestyle centered business to documentary work where I'm much happier and, and constantly learning from the families um, that I'm spending time with because, you know, recognizing that they, they have their own unique ways of parenting and, and children are of different personalities and, and appreciating, for instance, how one parent chooses to, to help support their neurodiverse child, for instance, you know, gives me ideas on, on what I could do with my own children if they were to be in a, in a situation where they needed that support. So it's, it's that mistake of 
doing something because I thought that was the way you needed to do it and figuring out that that's not for me and changing course. What other things? Oh, not checking my cards early on. I lost a session before. <laughs> so that's like a, that's like a technical mistake that you could probably avoid, but nothing profound from that, <laughs> except that I had to <laughs> crawl between my tail and, and call them up and say, can we reschedule that session? Cause I just lost it all. Oh, no. Yeah, thankfully it was a short sort of a lifestyle session that was early on in my um, my business. So one of the projects that um, I saw that you were working on right now is an exploration of the fertility challenges Ooh, of a single yes. woman in her mid forties. I'm curious how this came about, what you've learned from it, and how you feel about personal projects uh, for a photographer if they if you feel like they are a necessary thing to grow. Uh, yes, I do believe that personal projects are very necessary and you have to be very selfish about why you do them because otherwise they won't be personal to you and won't serve you. And I think maybe women more than men have a really hard time making choices that are truly selfish for whatever reason. And so doing personal projects is a way to really give back to yourself, so to speak. So that selfishness will be a gain at some point in time for your own personal revelation and, and growth as a photographer. Um, so that project came about through a very different uh, thing that I usually participate in at the very beginning of every year. It's a story visioning exercise that I do with a community of women in Vancouver. And so we come together and at the beginning of every year, um, we spend sort of half a day going through magazines and tearing things out and making a collage of how we envision our year to be. And at some point during the day, we start to talk about what we want. And so part of that creation, tangibly creating this collage and talking about it is, is just helping kind of solidify the manifestation of the things that we, we want for ourselves and for the people in this year. Um, Miriam was at one of the story visioning um, workshops, I think three years ago now. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 2018 so it feels like three years and she was there and she shared her board and it's it's predominantly about pregnancy loss and and also the sense of hope that she's still wanting to pursue becoming a parent despite the things that she the the, the babies she's lost along the way and the challenges medically that she's facing in in order to be able to conceive her own baby but the board was so hopeful and and part of the board was also a picture of a candle. Um, she's Jewish, so this it's a very special candle that she had burnt. And she was telling a story that she was walking um, the week before onto uh, a frozen lake in Vancouver. And as you know, like Vancouver, it doesn't ever snow. And if that happens, it melts away the day after. And so to have a frozen lake in the middle of Vancouver was pretty significant weather-wise and, and also just, it's so special. So she was there, she had just lost another one of her babies and she was there lighting the candle and reading this beautiful letter she had written to him. And I could not get her words and her story out of my head for a whole year. And so finally, when the story visioning came around again and the opportunity presented itself, I, I got in touch with her and I said, I, I still can't, I haven't forgotten the story that you shared last year. And I, I would love to know where you are at with your pregnancy or fertility journey at this point in time. And I would love to 
share an idea that I have for you. And I would love to be part of your sort of pursuit to parenthood. Um, if you would feel comfortable having me along on that journey. So we chatted for, um, for a few hours that morning and she seemed to be open to the idea. I think also because she's, she's had other people approach her. So CBC radio Canada, um, the French radio was, had already kind of slotted her in for an interview about where she's at. So she was already quite, um, quite comfortable sharing her story with other people and, and I was grateful for the people that came before that, that she had already kind of opened that door um, with them. So I started essentially at like after four and a half years of her already trying to do this. And I was at the very tail end of it. And for whatever reason, that was, that was kind of the end point where she has looked at all these different medical options and now is down to a sperm donor and an egg donor and she would be carrying the babies. And I don't know, it's sometimes you're, you're in situations where you're like, wow, this is like meant to be or something because I, I walked, I've been to several appointments with her. And when I was at the appointment where they were going to put both the sperm and the egg into her uterus, the person that was administrating the the procedure was actually a good friend of mine. Like I knew she worked for that fertility clinic, but I had no idea who, it was going to be. And so Dr. Talon walked in and <laughs> we both looked at each other and it's like, wow, we have, have a really, really good feeling about this. And so, <laughs> you know, very, very amazingly, um, the pregnancy took and she ended up having two viable, um, viable fetuses. So, oh, wow. but her pregnancy was not easy. At some point in time, one of the sacs started leaking amniotic fluid. And because the, she was kind of midway through her pregnancy, Angie, I hope this is not like setting you off at all, being sensitive that you're, oh, you're muted for some reason. Oops. <laughs> uh, the, jo the joys of the internet. I know. <laughs> no, yeah. you're just gone to us, Angie. <laughs> uh oh. Um, but no. <laughs> yeah, just it's, it turns out well, I promise. <laughs> but one of the doctors, um, that were, that was handling her case or her progress basically asked her, like, you know, if you wanted to make one viable pregnancy go to term, you might have to consider terminating the other one. And she had to go, um, well, she had a very strong gut feeling that this was not what it's supposed to be. And she really pushed for anything she could to, to keep her babies alive for as long as she could on bed rest in, in the hospital. And, and they did come very early um, at short, like about 32 weeks. Um, yeah. So they came early and she spent a long time in NICU because they were very little when they mm -hmm. were born. So I'm actually still documenting her life with the twins and they're turning two in a few days wow. so what a journey yeah and she um she's been a single parent to them until recently where she's actually met someone that um is wonderful to her and to her her kids actually i don't know if you're doing the video part but just give me one second i'm gonna grab her book sure so the, part of the reason yes part of the reason <laughs> why um 
we decided that this project was also really important is when I met up with her, she had shared with me in our first meeting that she was um, doing writing a book, a graphic novel specifically, because she was so tired of going into all these different clinics and speaking to women and hearing their experiences of loss and what they have is nothing but pamphlets to show for it. And they were so tired mm -hmm. of not getting resources emotionally to be able to do this, um, to get through this journey on their own with some support and emotional kind of language. And so she's recently published this book and it's going to go, it's pre-sale only now, but it's going to go live this spring. It's called Catalog Baby. It's beautifully illustrated and it talks about, it's kind of really everything that she's been through so that someone else doesn't have to be reading a pamphlet and not the emotional language that can help them feel less alone in their in their loss and search for fertility and wow. and babies. Yeah. Wow, that's a beautiful story. <sighs> <Yeah>. and, I, <laughs> and I'm happy you guys can hear me now. No, no this is great. great. It was amazing. Okay, yeah. so thank you so much for sharing everything with us and all of your wisdom. And I mean, if I I already see the value in documentary family photography, but I feel like now after talking to you, I'm I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to have a second brand and just do this. I haven't even done my first one yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, we always end um, asking the same question. So seeing as business is an adventure, what would be your, um, your field guide or your notes that you would give to someone who's embarking on their own business adventure? Uh, definitely make sure that the numbers work for you and your time and your time away from whomever is important to you in your life. And um, take some risks. Try different things. And, and you don't have to, for instance, if you're deciding to become a, a, only a documentary family photographer, there is no shame or, or um, chipping away at the integrity of the work that you do if you choose to incorporate school portraits, which I still do. <laughs> um, so just trying to find some way to make work um pay the bills but pay it enough so that you can still find some joy from it really yeah awesome. that's great advice i feel like i'm right there in my career right now so yeah it's nice to hear hey. that <laughs> yes well thank you for hanging out with us thank you both uh, it was really fun Thanks so much for tuning into our show today. You can find a transcript of this episode and all of our episodes, as well as our show notes at businessasanadventure.co slash podcast. You can find us on our Instagram at businessasanadventure. We'd also love to see you in our Facebook community, where we provide weekly free education for our fellow adventurers. You can find the link in our show notes. And finally, if you want to get a weekly, not spammy, email from us with our favorite things we've found in the business and creative world, you can sign up for our Field Note Fridays at businessasanadventure.co slash fieldnotes.